Hello and welcome back to the final episode of After School Science Club's first season. We're finishing off strong this week as we explore science's final frontier, the ocean floor. Today, we're joined by Professor John Copley, deep sea ecologist, marine biologist and ocean explorer extraordinaire, to talk about the mysteries of the deep. John Copley, welcome to After School Science Club. Before we dive into the questions that we have for you, could you just introduce yourself to our listeners and what you do? I'm John Copley. I'm a professor of ocean exploration at the University of Southampton in the UK, and I'm a marine biologist. So my work is trying to understand what lives where and why in the deep ocean that covers most of our world. So let's then start with probably the biggest question. How much do we actually know about the ocean floor? It depends by what you mean by know. Um, we often hear that we know more about Mars and the moon than the ocean floor. And that's true for one type of knowledge that we have uh, about the deep ocean. Um, but actually, I think we know a lot more than we kind of popularly give ourselves credit for. We've been exploring the deep ocean for um, a, a, more than a couple of centuries now. Uh, so we do actually know quite a lot. The one thing we don't know as much about is the detail of the terrain of the ocean floor. Um, we haven't mapped it in detail because we can't use satellites to map it from space because the seawater blocks the signals that satellites use to map the land and that we use to map other planets from space probes. So we have to use other techniques to map the ocean floor in more detail, and that takes time. So we don't have as detailed maps. Um, of the ocean floor, as we do of places like the Moon and Mars. But we know a lot more about what happens down there. Uh, we know about, obviously, what well, we're still exploring, what lives down there, but we have found out a lot. Uh, we understand the environment, the conditions, the processes that shape the ocean floor. And indeed, in, in doing that, they shape all of our planet. Uh, so we do know quite a lot. So tell us a little bit about the mission to map the ocean floor and where it stands right now. The way that we map the ocean floor in detail is to use sonar. So we bounce sound signals off the ocean floor. Um, and because we know the speed of sound in seawater, we can basically time, measure the time it takes to get the echo back. And that tells us how deep the ocean is underneath the ship with that sonar or underneath the deep diving vehicle. Um, and sonar allows us to build up detailed maps. So the current sort of standard that, that we'd like to have for the whole ocean floor um, is at about what we call 100 metres resolution. That means things that are bigger than 100 metres across, we'd be able to see on those maps. So things like undersea canyons, certainly all the undersea mountains that are out there, they would be all on those maps. And we've mapped a quarter of the ocean floor to that level of detail so far. Uh, and there's a big effort underway internationally to coordinate what all the ships that have this sonar mapping equipment are doing out there, make sure that everyone is you know, working together and sharing the data um, so that hopefully by 2030, we might have a map of the entire ocean floor to that level of detail. Now, we do have a map of the entire ocean floor already at a 
bigger scale, um, we've got a map that covers all of the ocean floor, but it, it can only see things that are bigger than about five kilometers. That's about three miles uh, across. So it can see large undersea mountains. It can see all the ocean trenches, uh, other things like this volcanic rift that runs all down the ocean called the Mid-Ocean Ridge. We've mapped all of the big features um, of the ocean. Um, and that was done using satellites from space, um, but some very clever tricks. Although the satellites can't bounce radar signals off the ocean floor like we do with mapping other planets because the seawater blocks the radar signals, what satellites can do is measure small bumps and dips in the surface of the sea itself. And those bumps and dips actually tell us about the shape of the ocean floor um, underneath. If you have something like an undersea mountain, then you've got a big mass of rock sticking up out of the surrounding ocean floor. And that actually means gravity is a little bit stronger uh, if you're on uh, above that undersea mountain. And that pulls the sea into a little bump above it. But if you were above an ocean trench, uh, then the solid mass of the Earth is further away from you at the bottom of that trench. Local gravity is a little bit weaker and you actually get a very small dip in the surface of the sea. And by measuring these very small bumps and dips in the surface of the sea and subtracting all of the variation we get from the tides and the wind and, and waves and so on, um, satellites have been able to build up this map of the entire ocean floor. Uh, so it, it always depends what level of detail we're interested in. So about 25% for this, you know, 100 meter scale that we're working towards. But of course, you know, what we often want to know is what does it look like down there? What's living down there? Um, and to do that, well, we have to get down there with cameras or dive in human occupied vehicles and see for ourselves. Um, and the total area that's been seen by human eyes, either through pictures or, or by people diving in, in those kinds of vehicles, is really, really tiny. It's probably about one two hundredth of one percent. So that's a really small area. Um, it's a, probably about the size of the island of Tasmania. Um, that's the, the total area of the ocean floor that's been, been seen by human eyes one way or another. So tell us then, what are some of the weirdest deep sea creatures that are lurking in the oceans? Well, everywhere you go in the oceans, there are lots of different deep sea habitats. I think that's the, the first thing to realise, which we've, we've discovered over the past decades, is the deep sea isn't like one environment. So we tend not to generalise about life on land, you know, and consider all things living on land as being from the same place or in, in somehow the same. You know, we think about things that live in rainforests and they're different from things that live in deserts or, you know, in polar tundra or, or whatever. Um, and it's the same in the deep ocean. There are lots of different habitats and each has got their own, you know, equally remarkable inhabitants. Uh, so, you know, it depends where you go and what you're interested in. You'll always find something unusual to us because the conditions down there are very different to the conditions we're used to up here. And so the adaptations that animals have, you know, are different because they're adapted to those conditions. So, you know, I've got lots of favourites. Um one of my favourites is an animal called a benthic siphonophore. Uh, and this is actually not a single animal. It's actually a colony um, of polyp animals that live together um, and they all coordinate their kind of lives together as a, as a colony. And what does it look like? It looks like some sort of shaggy bodied monster from science fiction maybe about six feet high. Um, the body is sort of these shaggy polyps 
and it's got um, uh, what looks to us at least like a bit like a head on a neck that it can extend. Uh, that's actually like a float that it uses because this thing drifts across the seabed and it trails long tentacles behind it to catch its food. Um, and that's certainly unlike anything I'm familiar with on land or in the shallows. That's such a cool thing to imagine and just such an unusual way for an organism to function. I think probably most of us actually have our own favorite deep sea creatures. I know I really love giant deep sea isopods and I love gulper eels because they're just so weirdly disproportionate for land creatures. They really drive home how unknown things are on the ocean floor. Well, in a lot of the habitats in the deep ocean, not all of them, but in a lot of them, food can be quite scarce because in a lot of cases, ultimately things are dependent on food that sinks from above. They're either eating what remains from what sinks down from above or they're eating things that eat what sinks down from above. But whichever way you, you do that, the deeper you go, the less food of that kind there is available. And that's why for things like the gulp reel, we see, as you say, it's very disproportionate um, because it's adapted to tackling large prey. You know, it, 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 when food becomes scarce, then you want to try and make a meal out of anything you come across. And one of the ways of doing that, which we see in quite a lot of deep sea animals, is to be able to, to tackle prey that's much bigger than the normal prey. So hence the name gulp reel, the fact that they have that amazing, you know, extendable big gulping mouth. They've got elastic stomachs. They can they can swallow, you know, large, large prey to overcome that. And we see that in, in quite a lot of, of deep sea animals. Um, they can they can do that. And then you also mentioned the giant isopods, uh, and they are scavengers. Um, so they live on the seabed. And one of the things that they're very good at is detecting the, the bodies of larger animals that have died in the ocean and sunk to the seabed so they can make a meal of, of their remains. So they're extremely good at sniffing out those what we call food falls, uh, because when something like a fish dies and its carcass sinks and then it's it's decomposing and so on, then kind of the odor of that of that fish's body is wafting away in the currents. And the giant isopods can detect that from a long way away, very sensitive, and then they can swim, you know, in the direction of that underwater smell um, to try and, and find that food so that they can they can make a meal of it. And they also have these really big eyes. Um, and that often surprises people that animals in the deep sea, um, quite a lot of them have eyes because when we go really deep, we're beyond the reach of sunlight. There's no sunlight, but there is still light down there uh, because life, a lot of life makes its own light. We call it bioluminescence. Um, and giant isopods have very big compound eyes. Uh, and their eyes are really interesting because the, the food that they're looking for, the, the, the sort of carcasses of things, as they're rotting away with bacteria, in many cases, they actually glow very faintly. The bacteria are faintly bioluminescent. So there may be a faint glow from their food. So they, the odor of the of the food attracts them from quite a long way away. And as they get closer, they can then switch to using vision to home in on it uh, and to try and detect this, this faint glow. But their eyes aren't like ours because they only get an image sent to the brain probably about four times a second. 
So they'd be no good at tracking a fast moving object um, at all. But the constant glow from a fish carcass on the ocean floor kind of glowing. And, and these guys are, are, are crawling or swimming quite close to the, the seabed. So there's like a horizon that limits how far they can see. But they can probably detect the glow just over the horizon and then home in on that uh, to get to their next meal. It's so amazing how adapted these things are to living in an environment that we can't even imagine. I wasn't going to, but because you've mentioned these food falls, I do want to take five seconds of time to give credit to the humble hagfish, because I love hagfish too. I love that they can create their own environment. I love that they can tie themselves in knots to make sure they can eat. Um, for anyone who isn't listening, hagfish essentially grip onto a carcass by their front end and to avoid slipping off it they sort of tie the rest of their body into a knot or a curl so that they can pull off the piece of flesh yeah no hagfish are another another great deep sea scavenger and they're one of the animals that turns up very quickly at a at a food fall um so they again they must have good senses to be able to detect them and home in on that and they help to strip the flesh off the, the, the carcasses of larger animals um, that die and become foodfuls. And then what's really interesting is actually for me is what happens after animals like the hagfish have taken all the flesh away. If we're dealing with the body of a whale in particular. Um, so, you know, there are quite a lot of whales die naturally kind of of old age in their populations out in the oceans every year. Their bodies sink to the ocean floor where they then support their own little ecosystem. Um, for decades, actually, afterwards. So things like the hagfish turn up, they help to strip the flesh off the carcass and expose the whale bones. And that's also then really interesting because it is about being able to make a meal out of anything that you come across in the deep sea. So there are types of deep sea worms, um, and we nickname them zombie worms, that make a living out of digesting bone because bones contain inorganic mineral, of course, but there's also organic matter um, amongst that, amongst the inorganic mineral kind of within its, its framework. And these bone-eating zombie worms colonize the, the exposed bones once things like the hagfish have stripped flesh away, um, and they burrow into them. Um, and they have bacteria uh, that live in, in their roots. And basically the, the worms are able to secrete an acid that dissolves away the mineral bit of the bone and releases the organic matter. And then the bacteria help them to digest that. Um, so they live in a, in a partnership with these bacteria and they're able to get at that food locked away in bones that other things can't, can't make a meal of. Um, so that's their remarkable um, adaptation. Uh, so that happens at, at you know, things like whale carcasses. It, it happens at any bone actually that ends up in the deep sea eventually will get colonized by and eaten essentially by these bone-eating deep sea worms it sounds like there's parts of the carcass for every creature like nothing's going to go to waste absolutely nothing goes to waste and another kind of food that actually ends up in the ocean and, and kind of surprised me when I, I first became aware of it is is wood so actually you know there's quite a lot of big forested areas that are on our coastlines around the world and you know, trees naturally fall over and they end up in the rivers, they get washed out to sea. And something like about 8 million tonnes of wood gets swept out of sea naturally from rivers, um, floats around for a bit, but eventually becomes kind of waterlogged and sinks and ends up on the deep ocean floor. And again, there's a whole group of animals 
um, which have specialized in making a meal of wood because again the 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 food that's in wood is pretty indigestible I mean we we don't eat wood because we can't digest it so you kind of have to have special enzymes to digest the wood to get at the, the, the food that's locked away in it. Um, and there are wood-eating clams that live in the deep sea. And just like the bone-eating worms, they turn up really quickly. They colonize any wood in the deep sea. And we do experiments. We put down wood blocks and, you know, they're completely eaten away within a few months. You know, these things arrive as tiny larvae just floating around in the ocean currents. They then latch onto the wood. They grow. They eat the wood. They grow. They reproduce. Uh, and then kind of the next generation moves on to find the next woodfall. Um, so, yeah, absolutely nothing goes to waste. A question I had in mind earlier that came to mind was, you know, obviously we're talking about deep sea creatures. Humans can't withstand the kind of pressure past, I don't know what how many metres it is, but how have deep sea creatures, especially larger ones as well, evolved to be able to withstand the tonnes of pressure that comes from the ocean? That's a really good question about the pressure. And the thing about pressure is, yes, we have our limits. You know, we're not very good at withstanding pressure. The deepest a human being has dived in the ocean with an unprotected body, not in, a, in an armoured vehicle protecting them from the pressure, is 534 metres deep. And it took them, you know, it took them more than a week to acclimatise to those conditions. And it took them about three weeks to safely decompress afterwards from that particular um, uh, excursion that they had to kind of prove that it could be done. But that's because the reason we have our limits is because we are air breathing creatures and we have gas filled spaces inside our bodies. We have our lungs. Um, and that's a problem if we expose ourselves to high pressure because the, the gas in our lungs ends up under high pressure as our lungs get squeezed. And then that causes a whole load of problems because then that high pressure gas is ending up being forced into our bloodstream. And, you know, there are lots and lots of of side effects if you like from that that mean we we have our limits but for the animals that we're talking about in the deep ocean they don't obviously breathe air and they don't have gas-filled spaces inside them so they are not actually having to withstand pressure in the same way that our bodies do um, their bodies are made of solid tissues and liquid of bodily fluids and those types of, of material, those states of matter are pretty much incompressible. So a little experiment you can do um, to explore this for yourself is if you get a you know, plastic syringe um, and you put your thumb over the, over the end and you push on the plunger and it's full of air, yeah, you can squeeze the air, you can compress the air in that syringe very easily. But if you do the same thing and you fill the syringe with water, you will not budge that plunger, no matter how hard you push, because water is pretty much incompressible, okay, compared to a, a gas like air. And if you were to fill the syringe with, with something like modelling clay, some sort of solid matter, again, you will not be able to compress it. You won't be able to squeeze it down. So for animals whose bodies are made of solids and liquids, no gas, then actually in, in, the pressure inside their bodies is the same as the pressure outside their bodies. Their bodies are not being squeezed by the pressure. So they don't have to mechanically withstand a difference in pressure um, like we do. I mean, the way that we get into the deep ocean is, of course, we dive in deep diving vehicles where we stay at normal atmospheric pressure inside 
And of course, it's many hundreds of times atmospheric pressure outside. And so the, the craft has to have incredibly thick and strong walls to withstand that difference in pressure. But for the deep sea animals, it's not like that. It's not a mechanical sort of challenge of resisting pressure like it is for our vehicles when we go into the deep ocean. There is a problem with pressure that all life faces, um, but it's a molecular one in terms of what happens inside cells. Um, and basically what happens is our cells, you know, the living processes in our cells, of course, are carried out by enzymes, which are protein molecules, and they need to be the right shape um, to work as enzymes to keep us alive. And the way that we make proteins in cells is cells put together these chains of amino acids. And then eventually, as you stick amino acids together, actually, they then automatically fold up into three-dimensional shapes and give you a protein molecule with a particular shape. Now, under high pressure, water molecules get trapped on that, that chain of amino acids that's being formed to make a, a protein and stop it from springing up into the right shape to work as an enzyme. Um, so that's actually a problem that, that deep sea life does have. And it's, but it's not a mechanical one, it's a molecular one. And what deep sea animals do is they have other little molecules in their cells, we call them chaperones, that help to pull the water molecules off the unfolded protein as it's being built up so that it will fold up and have the right shape. Um, so they have adaptations to, to overcome that. So then with all of these complex problems and difficult conditions, what can the deep sea floor and the life that's on it tell us about the potential for life in other harshened environments, for instance, on other planets? Well, one of the big discoveries, I think, of the last just over 50 years, I guess, in the, in the deep sea uh, has been finding places in the deep sea where food isn't scarce. OK, so I mentioned earlier about, yeah, you know, it all it's a food chain that starts with basically algae living through photosynthesis in sunlit surface waters. And then, you know, there remains sink. And either you make a meal of that or you eat things that make a meal of that. But the deeper you go, the less food there is available. Well, just over 50 years ago, scientists came across hot springs on the ocean floor with lots and lots of life around them. And this was a total surprise because as food gets more scarce, life becomes more sparse. You know, there's generally less life the deeper you go. But here there was, you know, it was it was as lush as a, as a shallow water coral reef. You know, so much life. And we're talking, you know, uh, 2000 meters, more than one and a half miles deep. Um, there simply shouldn't be enough food for that for so much life at that depth. And it turns out that what was happening at these hot springs on the ocean floor called hydrothermal vents is there are bacteria that can make a living using minerals dissolved in this hot spring water that's gushing out of the ocean floor. And it's a, very, it's a different process. It's called chemosynthesis instead of photosynthesis. And that was a really big discovery, not just for understanding life in the deep ocean and the fact that sometimes it can be really rich, um, but it was a really big discovery because it expanded our understanding of how it's possible to support life. It doesn't have to be a food chain that starts with sunlight and photosynthesis. We can have food chains driven by chemical energy from dissolved minerals. Um, you know, so and we now know there are lots of other ways of sustaining life, you know, using electrical energy from reactions that take place between seawater and rocks and, and things like that. So it really expanded our perspective of, of what's possible. And that 
is really exciting when we think about life elsewhere in the solar system, because it means you don't have to be so close to a star like our sun that there's enough bright sunlight for you to get photosynthetic life. You could have life further out in the solar system where the sun is very dim and it wouldn't be much good for photosynthesis. But if you have the right chemistry, uh, then maybe you can get these chemically powered forms of life. Um, so it showed us what's possible. Um, and that then has got people excited about searching those kinds of places. So one of the places that people are very excited about trying to explore in the future is one of Jupiter's moons called Europa. And what's interesting about Europa is it's we know its surface is covered in ice, but we're pretty sure that that is an icy crust. And underneath it, there's actually a liquid ocean. Um, and it's going to be a very and, and then there's a rocky core at the bottom of that ocean. And it's a very, very vol it's going to be a very volcanically active moon. There's going to be a lot of volcanic activity. It's, the nearest moon to it is another one called Io doesn't have an icy crust or an ocean, but it's the most volcanically active body in the solar system. It's got huge volcanoes erupting all the time because Jupiter's gravity is basically pulling it apart, you know, pulling it and, and so on all the time. And it's churning its interior. The same is probably happening on Europa. There's a lot of volcanic activity at the bottom of that liquid ocean on Europa. Um, and where you've got liquid water and you've got volcanic activity, you've got all the ingredients for hydrothermal vents, these undersea hot springs, maybe that kind of chemistry which can sustain life here on Earth. So that's why people are interested in exploring some of these uh, exciting places further out in the solar system than, you know, 50 years ago, we would have thought, no, there's no point looking for life there. You're too far from the sun. Now we know you don't have to be perhaps that close to the sun. You said in an article once, um, to quote, I explored the Antarctic deep seas for the BBC's Blue Planet 2, and it was like going back 350 million years. What made you think that? Right. Um, yeah, so I, I did. I, I had some chance, a chance to dive to a thousand metres deep in the Antarctic, and this was to film the BBC Blue Planet 2 series. And what's interesting about the Antarctic is there aren't that many fish species that can cope with the really cold conditions in the Antarctic. There are a few and they're remarkable. They're, you know, there's one called the ice fish and it, it's amazing because it has clear blood. It doesn't have hemoglobin, red blood cells like we do. And yet it carries oxygen around its body because it's so cold, the oxygen can just dissolve in its blood. But at the same time, it has antifreeze proteins in its blood to stop its blood from freezing. So, you know, there are a few fish that can survive in these really cold, deep Antarctic waters, but there aren't many. And that means, you know, elsewhere in the oceans, fish tend to be, you know, important as top predators. But in the deep Antarctic, no, there are very few fishy top predators, which means a lot of the other top predators are invertebrate animals. And that's like the ocean was before fish really, you know, started to dominate. OK, so that's why it's like a glimpse back in time. It's what the kind of food chains would have been like back then before kind of fish started to, to, to really rise in prominence um, in the oceans. So one of the animals we came across that I think is an example of this um, is a kind of sea star, a kind of starfish. Uh, but instead of having like just five arms, like we see on, on starfishes on, we're familiar with on our beaches, this has got 50 arms. And most starfish feed by, you know, they're scavengers and they'll, they'll or, or they're predators and they'll crawl over their food and, and then they'll, they'll eat it. 
But this particular Antarctic um, type of, of starfish feeds by waving its 50 arms up in, up in the water like little fishing rods, and they're sticky. Um, and when krill swim past, they're, they're actually little tiny little pincers on, on its arms. They snag the krill, hold it, and then the, fish, the, the starfish will eat, eat the krill that it's caught by you know, fishing with its arms. Now, there are starfish like this elsewhere in the ocean, but they don't feed like that. Because if they were waving their arms about, they get bitten off by fishy predators. So it gives you an idea that once there, there are fewer fish, you see this, you know, the, these other kinds of predation, these other ways of catching food. That's pr probably what it would have been like 350 million years ago before fish kind of rose to prominence. So that's why it's a, it's a glimpse back into the past. Here in Canada, I live quite near the Burgess Shale, which... Uh, is a Cambrian fossil deposit from about 500 million years ago. And it contains a fascinating array of invertebrates. And you can really see what it must have been like when they ruled the oceans, because there are shapes that you couldn't even imagine a creature being today. They've got, you know, five eyes and flexible hose noses and all sorts of things. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, th things were very different, uh, you know, back then. And you, you, that's a, the Grotius Shale is such a great example of, again, the possibilities that you can have when the conditions are different. So I just wanted to ask you, if you could fund any one deep sea research project you wanted, what would you choose and why? I would actually like to see, um, and this isn't an expedition. I mean, you know, when, when I hear that question, I often think, oh, you, you know, are you asking me where in the world would I like to go? To explore and i used to have an answer to that and there are always places you know the next place i'm targeting i'd like to get to and and, and have a look at um but actually now when i get that question what i now think of is actually what i'd like to see funded is the development of technology that makes the deep sea accessible to more people so um i have some colleagues in the united states who have worked with um, local communities, coastal communities around the world to together design a really low cost deep sea exploration probe. You know, so it uses Raspberry Pi kind of computer technology. It's got a camera on it, but the whole thing can be built for about 700 US dollars and it can go down to one and a half thousand meters deep. And it can it can record video. You know, you can put other sensors on it to measure other things and so on. And the idea is if we can bring the cost of that kind of thing down um, with some clever design, then anyone who is you know, living in a coastal community or whatever, or just wants to find out more about the deep sea can have access to it, can get involved in exploring it themselves, because until now, deep sea exploration has been you know, pretty expensive. So it's been pretty much rich nations that have been doing it, or in some cases, very rich individuals, billionaires, you know, have got involved in doing it and so on. Um, and, and now I think for us to really, you know, benefit from, from exploring the deep sea, then we need, we need to all have the opportunity to be involved because we all bring different perspectives to it. And we've all got our different reasons um, for wanting to find out more about it. And then we're all involved in the choices you know, in our lives that are affecting the deep sea, most importantly, for its future. So in a sense, it's kind of like democratising um, the deep sea. 
And I think that is such a worthwhile project. That is the one project I would like to see funded and developed and you know growing out across the world. That's amazing. We're all about that here at After School Science Club. We want everyone to have access to all of the science. So what a brilliant project. Thank you so much for coming on today, John. That was such a great talk. An absolute pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity to talk about the deep sea. Really appreciate it. Great. Well, there's plenty more to explore. Thank you all for listening. With this episode, we're drawing season one of After School Science Club to a close. But don't worry, after a short break, we'll be back with season two. That's right. We'll see you in March. But in the meantime, subscribe to our newsletter at scienceclubpodcast.substack.com for updates. And don't forget, if you like what you hear, feel free to like, subscribe or share After School Science Club with your friends. Boom! We did it!